with me this evening as we turn back to the Gospel of Luke where we were this morning. Let's turn back to the Gospel of Luke together. We're going to continue in our passage there in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 36 and we'll read down through verse 38. Luke chapter 2. This morning we looked at the witness of Simeon. Saw witness Simeon's example and the testimony that he gave as he looked for the consolation of Israel. And the text continues right into the example, the second witness, as we see in the Old Testament pattern, where two witnesses must verify matters in life and death. Here we have Anna uh, coming to bear witness of the king. And beginning in verse 36, the word of God reads, Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. Notice the phrase there, coming in that instance, this is a connection to the previous passage. This is the very moment as Simeon has taken the baby Jesus from the arms of Mary and Joseph, as we saw this morning, that was sudden, no doubt astonishing to them. And then he declares a song over the child and then speaks the word, a sober warning to Mary. Then Anna, coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption, the redemption of the Christ in Jerusalem. Well, this is the Word of God. As we look into the Word of God, it's so fascinating. I love Luke's Gospel, and I love the writings of Luke that we find in the Gospel of Luke and also in the book of Acts, simply because of the amount of detail that Luke gives. If you're a person who likes to get into the detail, then Luke's your guy. Luke includes more specifics, and oftentimes you'll see that when we're in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we cross-reference and we say, what does Luke have to say in this alternate account? But here, Luke is giving us these, these subtle servants, if you will, these least of these that in the eyes of the world are not very famous, they're not very well-known, but these are the servants of the Most High God. More specifically, we could ask the question, why does God give us so much information as the Holy Spirit leads this to be penned and inspired. In the overarching macro point of view, God is making a case for His Son. God is raising up witnesses. He's superintending witnesses. He's raising up His servants to give testimony to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to give evidence to the birth of Christ. Isn't it interesting that God calls to witness, as we noted this morning, the common people? Anna and Simeon and Zacharias and Elizabeth are not power movers or shakers. They're not the ruling class. They're not the leaders politically. They're not the leaders of their land religiously in any way. Again, they're not the movers and shakers. Even the shepherds were looked down upon by their humble occupation. Simeon was a common man and Anna is a common woman. And if you read too carefully, you might just miss them in Luke chapter 2. In fact, I'm certain many people in their scripture reading as they read maybe the, the Christmas portions of scripture on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve with their family, I think they end it long before they ever get to Simeon and Anna. And uh, somehow they get lost in the gutters or the margins and that type of thing. But the Holy Spirit wants us to know about these 
individuals. So as we consider Anna this evening, this humble servant of the Lord, she's a common woman, but then again, she isn't. She's unique and uncommon because of her devotion to her Lord, because of her consecration to Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.27, as we saw, and remind ourselves often, it reminds us, Paul says, but that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. So as we look here, we see these godly people that Luke is recording, those who in Isaiah 40, as we saw this morning, are looking for the consolation of Israel. What we find is that in all this darkness and all this years of 400 years of silence between the Testaments and the coming of the birth of Christ is the Holy Spirit wants us to know, Luke wants us to know that there is still a group of people, a remnant, looking for the coming Messiah. Simeon has, of course, the sure word of prophecy that he will see uh, the coming Messiah before he dies. And here we have Anna, who was not given uh, that same promise, but yet lives as if she is, fully anticipating, fully expecting to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As I mentioned a moment ago, in the Old Testament, there's a principle in the, the guidelines given to witnesses. And we see here a second witness comes into play. We saw Simeon's character that he was just and devout, that the Holy Spirit came upon him for service and for revelation, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we see how Luke records for us in every step of these accounts, both Mary and Joseph are following the word of God or the law of God. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of Moses of Luke chapter 2. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of Moses. And then verse 29, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. And here's the point. Luke wants us to know these are trustworthy, credible witnesses. We can know this because of the hallmarks of God's using them. They are devout. They're holy. They're being used for service. We now come to Anna. Her name means grace, grace. The Old Testament rendition of her name is that of, of Hannah, godly Hannah of old, which we have studied before in our teaching ministry here at Grace. We've looked at that example of Hannah as a mother who fasts and prays and seeks the Lord's face for a child. And we see here that Anna is well-named. I have to be careful. I'm going to start calling her Hannah. Anna here is well-named. She is a godly lady. She is a gracious lady, but don't be deceived. It's not that her life has been easy. In fact, it's been anything but easy. But we see that she is, her name is given to her aptly. She is a servant of the Lord. Jesus teaches in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 to his disciples, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. I'm not sure if Anna heard that, but she is certainly exhibiting that, modeling that. This is the first and great commandment. She is gifted, as the text will show us. We'll look at it in just a moment. She's gifted in understanding God's Word. It's very clear that she understands the Old Testament. And what she does have, as far as the written communication of God, she is well-versed in. In fact, Luke tells us she is a, a prophetess. But the first thing I want us to notice is that she is a significant woman. Anna is a significant woman. And what we find here in this text is that there is genuine faith on display in a day of great spiritual darkness. As a matter of fact, there, there is a contrast between the spiritual darkness. This is in the midst of great apostasy. 
where the religious leaders of Israel have turned their face upon the light of revelation of God's word, and they have supplanted it and replaced it with their own commentary and their own how-tos and their own rigidness and their own laws and rules to keep. And here Anna knows the word of God, has a heart full of faith. She is a believer, just like Zacharias and Elizabeth, just like Joseph and Mary and Simeon. Notice again this assortment of God's servants, both young and old, common and everyday. If you blink, you'll miss them. In verse 36, we see the reason of her significance. The Holy Spirit tells us that she is the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. If you remember, the tribe of Asher is of the 12 tribes, going back to the Old Testament. It's the humble tribe, literally means the happy. Asher was was happy. He came from the least of the least of the least of Abraham's wives. He was ultimately of the servant of the least favorite wife. You have Leah and Rachel, and then the least of Leah's servants. He's just at the bottom of the totem pole. But what we know about Asher is that there's two designations for his name, and it's humble and happy. It's as if Asher's lot in life never really truly affected him. But here, as if you know Old Testament history, the kingdom was split after Solomon's reign, and the ten tribes went north, and two tribes stayed south. The south was Judah and Benjamin, just by way of review, and the, all, all the other ten tribes went north. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was taken into the captivity of the Assyrians, and ultimately, as they were taken captive, they were dispersed and they never returned. But interestingly enough, here... The Holy Spirit says Asher, one of those lost tribes of Israel that was dispersed, and we really don't know fully all the details of what happened to them, but the Holy Spirit does. And in the book of Revelation, there's going to be 12,000 out of all the tribes that are raised up for the Lord. If you know uh, the the, the book of Revelation and what we see in prophecy. So one thing we're comforted by and know for sure is that the Holy Spirit knows those who are his, right? He doesn't lose track of the details and the heritage and the records, even though men might. In fact, I would just tell you this, as I study the Word of God and read the Word of God, I'm always comforted that the Holy Spirit has inspired this book. We can rest in it, we can trust in it, and as we study the words, we don't have to worry about, is this significant, or is this unimportant, or is this whatever? We can just know this, the Holy Spirit has put it here for our learning and our admonition, and He wants us to know this, and that is helpful as we study the Word of God. So here the Holy Spirit records for us Anna's heritage and tells us that as even though the Jewish people were keeping records, they might not have known all the details of those lost tribes, but God keeps his people and he keeps his promises. She stands to us as an example of God's ability to preserve a people of faith. Most importantly, not only is she from a humble tribe, as I mentioned a moment ago, and the name Asher, happy tribe, but the most important thing here is that she is holy. She knows the Lord and she seeks the Lord's face. Now, as we consider that just for a moment, that leads us to point number two. She is a faithful woman. One thing that clearly stands out in this text is that this woman is a faithful man. The Old Testament says this, the book of Proverbs says, a faithful man who can find. And if we were to tweak that just a second, we'd say here, a faithful woman who can find. And here is Anna seeking the Lord, living for the Lord, walking by faith, serving Christ. She is faithful. As we look at this text, just a few short verses in verse 36 to 38, we see that she was faithful as a maiden. Verse 36 tells us that she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. She was chaste prior to her marriage. She was faithful to the Lord. She's faithful to her marriage in verse 36 that she remained with her husband for seven years, a very brief marriage, very short 
marriage. Only seven years, and then the Lord, the text doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us, but he died. The Lord took him. Verse 37 then tells us that this woman was a widow of about 84 years. So depending on how you read the text, she's anywhere from 95 years old to 105 years old. Different commentators say uh, different things there, but one thing we know for sure, she's old. And the point of the emphasis of emphasizing that she's old is her faithfulness. This woman has experienced great tragedy, great sorrow in her very young life, and yet she has given her life to serve her God. She is faithful to her God. Verse 37 tells us that she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You know, you think about it in a day when many people are worried that they're going to do too much. Anna literally gave and poured out her life to serve God. This is a faithful woman. In fact, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, very briefly. 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul gives teaching on widows. I think we find Anna fits the profile, just to touch on the clear, plain teaching that is given in the New Testament regarding widows. Widows indeed, the designations that are given here regarding who should support them, the life of the church, kind of the guiding principles. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers Night and day, verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And there's a fuller teaching going down all the way down to verse 10 and 11. I think we see here that Anna has given herself as a godly widow over to the clear teaching of Scripture. This is a woman who is anything but self-indulgent. If anyone has a target for the root of bitterness in, in their life, for bitterness to take root and maybe defile or corrupt, Anna is a key target. All of her dreams are gone. And yet she knows the word of God. She knows the promises of God. In fact, I came across this week something that I thought that is helpful. You, in, in thinking about Anna, you can't help but apply it to her life. Isaiah 45, verse 3. God tells his people, he says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden, reach, and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I am the Lord. Anna is someone who has certainly entered into the darkest places of this life and knows the secrets of the darkness, the presence of her God. It's clear. It's evident by the choices that she makes. She says, I will not grow bitter. I will trust the promises of God. I will serve him. And that leads us to not only was she a faithful woman, but it's clear here in the text that she is a woman who serves. She is a woman who serves. Instead of becoming bitter, she gives her life to full service for her king. In fact, you could say it like this. In the most least glamorous time, if you're just to think that way, in the topography of time and the, the annals of time and the channels of time, this is maybe the most least glamorous time. There are no book publishers who are going to want to hear her story. There's no blog post that she can write out every day for therapy, and I'm not putting those things down. There's certainly a place for those things. I'm just saying she lives in the most least glamorous of time. But what we see here is that she does what she does for her king. She does it for the audience of one. It doesn't matter if anybody ever knows. Anna lives for the king of kings and lord of lords. 
She has entered into the treasures of darkness that he himself gives in those moments. He gives to his people. Many of you have experienced and tasted of God's faithfulness and presence in these same ways as well. Now, verse 36 says, as we think about she serves the Lord, she's a prophetess, a prophetess. This is a rare statement. In fact, the only other time it's used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation, the exact usage of the word. It's in reference to a a false prophetess in the book of Revelation. In Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it's mentioned that Philip had daughters. In Acts 21, verse 9, they entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. And then verse 9 tells us, as an aside, now this man uh, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So it gives the action. It doesn't call them a prophetess, but says that they prophesied. In the Old Testament, we see the designation more commonly given, even though it's, it's rare there as well. We see Miriam in Exodus 15, verse 20, designated as a prophetess. Judges chapter 4, verse 4, Deborah, maybe one of the more well-known ones. 2 Kings 22, Huldah. And then Nehemiah 6, verse 14, one who was a fake prophetess, Noadiah. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, the wife of Isaiah is designated as a prophetess. To put it simply, as we consider Anna and her service to the Lord, a prophetess is someone who speaks in its most basic meaning. Someone who speaks. So the clear idea here is that she is a teacher. She is a speaker of God's truth. She knows God's word. She spoke God's word. We know this. She, she must have been a, a teacher, an influencer probably, in knowing, honoring God of women, influencing younger women, teaching women. But we don't know all the details of it. I'm not going to try to fill in the blanks. I think one thing we can say for sure is that she's not a source of divine revelation. She's not a source of divine revelation, but she serves God in a way that is honoring to him. No doubt ministering to children and women and in the life of the church, it's clear she's given her life to serve him in the way and the roles that God has ordained. This woman is a faithful woman. She has a special place of service. In fact, in her loss, this is seemingly what she has given herself uh, to pursue. Verse 37 tells us, Anna, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Anna is a faithful servant of the Lord. In fact, you could say it like this. She's the opposite of the hypocrite. You remember? In Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions both of these things, both of these spiritual disciplines. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites who twist their faces, who announce their prayers, who pray in public simply to, to be heard. Here we see Anna is the exact opposite of all of those things, serving in obscurity. Anna did what she did to magnify her God, to draw near to her God, to look for the consolation of Israel, just like Simeon, as we saw this morning. And it's clear as the text here tells us, the tenor of the text tells us in fastings and in prayers, I don't think they were just generic as as simply a spiritual discipline, although that's good. I think in her pattern, she's following that pattern of Simeon. I, I think there's a remnant here in the temple that gathers and they talk about such things. Part of their koinonia, part of their fellowship is, is, is he coming? Talking about the coming, talking about the Messiah, talking about it's going to be in our lifetime. I think Simeon has told them, all I know is the Lord has revealed to me that I will not die until I see the consolation of Israel. You've got to know Anna's living with this knowledge and probably his acquaintances with him. We see in the text... She comes right up and uh, basically snatches baby Jesus from the arms of Simeon and and declares praise over him as well. And I'm I'm reading between the lines there. Uh, But it's obvious that there is a remnant here. They're excited. They strengthen one another in the midst of so many. Another point I want us to note is that she was a devoted woman. Notice the text tells us night and day. 
The Holy Spirit records for us that night and day she did not leave. She did not depart from the temple again. Anna is not a woman who's afraid she's going to do too much for the king. She says, my life is given over to this. My husband is gone. How can I advance the kingdom of God? How can I worship God? How can I serve him? How can I look for him? How can I minister to others that God gives me influence over? Verse 37 tells us this. The Holy Spirit records this for us, that she gives her life to ministry. Now, one question as we read it on its literal rendering, does this mean that she lives at the temple? It's possible. We do know that there were apartments at the temple that the priests who came and would rotate in their annual duties uh, in the temple services, that they would stay temporarily at the apartments and the dwellings that were adjacent to the temple or part of the temple. It could be that when they recognized Anna wasn't ever going to leave, it could be when they recognized how serious Anna was, it could be that they, they gave her a place to stay. They, they recognized her value. They recognized her ministry. They recognized her devotion and her consecration. Or it could mean that, like what much like we use it today, um, he lives there. Like, not literally, but they're just there so much. It's as if uh, he lives there. Funny enough, it's not true. One of the brothers asked me this afternoon. I meet, I beat him to a, a, a meeting today. They said, do you, do you stay here all afternoon? I'm like, no way. I just literally just walked in. It may look like I do, but no, I don't. I just walked in. I left after the service this morning, and I walked in. We, we talk like that sometimes. Do you, are you here all the time? And that may appear to be that way, and so we don't know. But literally, this is a woman who gives herself in devotion, serving the Lord to the church, and it's for him and for him alone. She's not looking for the applause of men, but it's out of authentic love for God. Another point I'd like us to look at as we walk through this text is that she is obviously, as she comes into the temple as her pattern is, if she lives there, that she's walking in the room into that particular court of women, or if she is living afar and her pattern is to continually come to the temple. As we make a connection between the text this morning and tonight, we see that she is a sensitive woman. She's insightful. She walks up and sees Simeon talking to this young couple with a six-week, seven-week-old baby boy, and immediately she knows exactly who he is. We see here that she has an ability to recognize. The text has already told us that she's a prophetess. She understands God's truth, is able to grasp it. Verse 38, she comes right up to Simeon and gives his song of, and hears his song of declaration, no doubt, as he gives it to Mary and Joseph. And she jumps right in. Verse 38 says, And coming in that very moment, coming in that instant, she sees Christ in Simeon's arms and instantaneously knows that this is the Messiah. The Holy Spirit, in the same way he came upon Simeon, no doubt came upon Anna as well, and reveals the truth to her. And God gave her favor as his servant and chose her to be a witness along with Simeon for all time. Godly Anna. Who is Anna? Well, most people don't know. But Anna is one of those who bore witness to the fact that the Christ child has come. The consolation of Israel is here. And you know what? The Holy Spirit works in the same way today, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit doesn't reveal to us necessarily that the Christ child is here because he's no longer in the, in the cradle. He has gone to the cross. He's been buried. He's already resurrected, ascended to heaven on high. But the Holy Spirit still works in the same way today, opening the hearts of men and women. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, just very briefly. Acts chapter 17. We see a pattern 
where it gives us a backside, a background influence of how the Holy Spirit works in opening the hearts of men and women. I said Acts 17, Acts 16, verse 11. Acts 16, verse 11. Paul is walking through his journeys. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran straight course to Semothrace, and the next day came to uh, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which, was, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Lydia was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Lydia was one of those who worshipped God. The problem was she just didn't know God. She was in the right place doing the right thing. But notice the text says, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That phrase, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is the agent. He works. He works in our hearts and opens our understanding. And he opens up her hearts to heed the things spoken by Paul as he teaches and as he preaches. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. This is how the Holy Spirit still works today in the unique role of salvation, revealing Christ to those who are blind, to those who are like Lydia. They're religious, but lost. They don't understand they don't understand that their good works can never earn them merit with God. They're religious. They love to worship God. They love to come be with the people of God. The problem is they're just lost. And the Holy Spirit works in all of us. If you are a child of God here tonight, it's because the Holy Spirit opened up your heart and revealed himself to you, showed you your need for Christ, showed you your sin, and showed you your lot, if you will, showed you that you have fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 38 shows us that Lydia is a thankful woman. She gives immediate thanks to the Lord. She, like Simeon, is waiting for the redemption of Israel, and now he is here. And so she has a heart of praise for her God. Friends, I want to ask you this evening, are you thankful for Christ? Are you thankful for Jesus? Do you have a heart of praise towards God? When you discover new truths about him in, in the word of God, as you hear preaching that speaks of Christ and shows us his glory and reminds us of his work and his nature and his attributes, does your heart respond in praise and thankfulness towards God? And then as we conclude, finally, just this character sketch, this survey of Anna, verse 38, tells us this remarkable, in fact, many have called Anna the first missionary. The first missionary, verse 38 says this, she is the woman who spoke of him, shared Christ. Verse 38, she spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Wait a second, that's what I've been referring to, all those. You mean there are those who are like Simeon, they're like Anna. In the midst of all this apostasy, in the midst of all this spiritual blindness, these are those who have a fire lit within them, a spiritual fire, who know that God keeps his promises. That if he has made the promise, he will answer and he will send and he will be faithful to his promises. God is faithful. She came and went and spoke to all those. Think about this. She's, she's in her 90s. 
maybe even into 100. One commentator said they estimated, according to the way they read the text, 105. I don't know how they do all that. I, I, I have my own opinions, but I just think it's interesting. Some said, no, she's 95. Said, some said 105. Here's the point. Whether she's 95 or 105, she's speaking to all those looking for the consolation of Israel. This woman is, is a unique woman. This woman is a special woman. She is a witness for the king of kings, for the Christ child. Verse 38, she spoke of him to those who also looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. This speaks of messianic hope, nationalistic hope, but most specifically, salvific hope. Simon, excuse me, Simeon has expressed this morning, mine eyes have seen salvation. Notice the word redemption in verse 38. Simeon and Anna get the reason why Christ has come. This isn't just for the restoration of a kingdom. This isn't just about national solidarity and pride. This is about salvation. And these are two individuals who know why Jesus has come. They're not going to be disappointed. They're not going to, be a, they're not going to stumble at this stone of Christ. They fully understand why he has come and are anticipating the salvation that he brings. They're watching for his, the fulfillment of his promises, and they see it in Christ. Friends, I want us to turn in conclusion to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, because we find ourselves in a similar way, not looking to Anna for more how-to. We're looking to Christ, friends. We exalt in godly faithfulness. We can look to those who've gone before us, and we certainly say thank you for your example. But let's look beyond Anna now, and let's look to Christ as we think about her example and pointing us to Christ as we point others to Christ as well. In the same way, we are the church, of course. We're bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ. We're those who've been born again, and we live in that same type of tension of anticipation and expectation. We're not just singing the songs of the Christmas season looking backwards alone, but the songs of the Christmas season says if God keeps this promise, he also keeps that promise. We're not just those who look backwards and stay backwards. We, we, we think like this. We sing these promises, and these promises give us hope about these promises. As we look backwards, it causes us to look forwards as well as we live by faith in Christ alone. Titus 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men in the personal work of Christ. Verse 12, teaching us that denying, so what is the result of that? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Right now, this is, this is, this is the description of, of those who are in Christ Jesus. Teaching us the grace of God that has appeared to all men teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You and I must not be those who complain. We should pray. We should seek God's uh, power, his help. We should be concerned about national sins and sins in our area and, and how we can repent and, and lead the way and, and make a difference and be salt and light. But we must not be those who simply complain about the conditions of the day. Friends, this is the calling that God has called us to. Now, it sounds passive in a, uh, a passive way, but that's not it at all. The hope that we have leads to, act, to action, faithful action. So here's the idea that we live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. And it looks like this, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great Savior, God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is his second coming. 
In the same way, we look backwards to the first advent. We now look forward with, that's what he has done. But now we look to the second advent, where Christ comes for his bride, where Christ comes for his own. And in the same way, we look at Simeon and Anna as their model examples of looking for Christ. It simply causes us to look as well. We say, Lord, we long for your appearing. We long for your return. The Bible says, blessed are all those who long for his appearing, who long for his return. You know, on Christmas morning, I'm going to try to make this brief so I don't get off on a tangent. On Christmas morning, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be delightful. We, we love each other. We give gifts. But we all know what happens, right? Kids, y'all plug your ears. Plug your ears. Those gifts seem, I'm being funny, those gifts seem like they're just the most amazing things on earth. But we all know by 10 o'clock, half of them are broken. And the boxes become more entertaining and the wrapping paper becomes more entertaining than the actual gift itself. And all year long, you've been anticipating this, this, this one thing. And by 10 o'clock, it's already lost its luster, right? This world is not our home, friends. Everything that is here, everything that will be given will be something that breaks down and corrupts and falls apart one day. Our hope is looking, verse 13, we look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might buy us back, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, peculiar people, the King James says it, zealous for good works. So speak these things. Notice. What is our task? To simply exalt in this? Well, certainly, we marinate in it. We exalt in it. We exalt in the promises of God. We exalt in the confidence that we have in our sovereign God. But verse 15, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Be faithful to the word of God proclaimed, the entrusted word that is given to all of us. Look for the return of the Savior and make a difference where you are. Preach his name, teach his name. And as Paul will say in Colossians, our goal is that we will present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Our neighbors, our family, our friends, those that God gives us uh, connections and fellowship and relationships with, that we will see them become disciples of Christ. As we conclude tonight, do you pray? Do you long for his appearing? Do you find yourself fasting and seeking his face? Do you proclaim him? Do you desire to present, present every man perfect in Christ Jesus? What a wonderful example we see here in the text as Elizabeth, Anna, excuse me, as Anna Elizabeth and Zacharias and Simeon all point us to Christ. All week long I've been wanting to say Simon. Every time I see Simeon, I want to say Simon. No, Simeon, not Simon. And, uh, but all of them, they point us to Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we desire to fulfill the description of those who are of your bride, living faithfully, zealously, anticipating the return of Christ, but yet living full lives of service and devotion to you. Father, would you move us beyond worrying that we might, be able, we might do too much. We might wear ourselves out in the cause of Christ, but be faithful to the opportunities you give us to. Not all of us can serve you like Anna does, but what a wonderful example a model she is, as she shows that Christ is worthy, that God is worthy. Father, we look with eyes full of hope and faith, looking towards the second return of Christ, but also living victoriously in this present age, preaching and proclaiming the message of the gospel. We're not those, Lord, who simply hole up in some type of cave in the mountainside and just simply look for your appearing. Lord, we're those who live boldly and faithfully, living quiet and peaceable lives, but showing the power of the gospel. 
And Lord, we pray that you would continue to use us here at Grace Church, right here in Roan County, right here in Kingston, Tennessee. And Father, that you would raise up a people of God who are bold and courageous, regardless of what are the circumstances in our land or all around us, that we will continue to march, that we will continue to have a fixed face, a face that is fixed like a flint towards our King and our God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.